Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Thursday, April 27th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. The U.S. and South Korea announced plans to cooperate on nuclear arms. The Taliban kills an Islamic State group leader. United Kingdom officials say China's military buildup risks tragic miscalculation. Disney sues DeSantis. A British economist says people must tolerate financial stress. Half of New York City households face a cost-of-living crisis. The UK rejects Microsoft's deal for Activision Blizzard. A trans lawmaker in Montana is censured. Singapore executes a man over two pounds of cannabis. And a Swedish rocket accidentally crashes into Norway. In our top story, the U.S. and South Korea announce a nuclear agreement. Here are the facts agreed upon by Reuters, Wall Street Journal, CNN, NBC, and CNBC. The U.S. has agreed to give South Korea more input on a potential American nuclear response to a North Korean attack in return for an agreement that the country will not develop its own nuclear weapons. The agreement, called the Washington Declaration, will give South Korean leadership more of a voice on the use of U.S. nuclear forces to defend itself, though Washington would still retain control over the targeting and execution of weapons. As part of the agreement unveiled by U.S. President Joe Biden and South Korean President Yoon Suk-yul on Wednesday, the U.S. will also deploy nuclear-armed submarines to South Korea for the first time in decades. While it won't involve the U.S. deploying nuclear weapons to the country as it did during the Cold War, America will increase the number of military assets it sends, such as nuclear-armed submarines and bombers, on a temporary basis. The declaration will also improve joint training, information sharing, and military exercises between the two countries and contribute towards deterring and defending against North Korea. The agreement comes as Yoon is visiting the White House to celebrate 70 years of alliance between the two nations, which are reportedly expected to also announce a new student exchange program. Eric, thank you for laying out the facts on that story. Our first round of narrative spins begins with a pro-establishment narrative provided by WhiteHouse.gov. This treaty is meant to assure the South Korean public that the U.S. would have their back should any possible confrontation with North Korea occur. As longtime allies in the fight against authoritarianism in the East, it's the U.S.'s duty to use its global military prowess to deter any and all aggressors in the region who may seek to harm American interests and that of its many regional friends. And Counterpunch gives us an establishment critical narrative. Yoon has enabled the warmongering U.S. government since he first took office. In the name of preventing military escalation in the East, This joint doctrine is actually provoking North Korea and steering both the American and South Korean people toward an unnecessary war. Washington and Seoul have ignored the 80% of South Koreans who oppose the U.S. strategy of provoking China and other regional enemies. And this story has a Metaculous Prediction Community nerd narrative attached to it that says there's a 15% chance that there will be a full-scale war between North Korea and South Korea by 2050. Adam, I don't know about you, but it always gives me a warm and fuzzy feeling when two powerful countries can play nice with each other's toys. I think it's so cool that the U.S. is so willing to share their nuclear warheads. (laughs) (laughs) Want to help us improve the news? Go to improvethenews.org slash pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now, back to the news. 
News out of Afghanistan where the Taliban has killed an Islamic State group leader. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, CNN, Fox News, Al Jazeera, The Daily Wire, and Guardian. U.S. officials confirmed on Tuesday that Afghanistan's ruling Taliban has killed the Islamic State group or IS leader who reportedly planned the deadly bombing at Kabul airport during the U.S. withdrawal in 2021. The bombing killed 170 civilians and 13 U.S. soldiers as people tried to flee the country. The IS leader, who was affiliated with IS Khorasan, the military group's branch in Afghanistan and Central Asia, wasn't named. However, U.S. National Security Council member John Kirby referred to him as, quote, the mastermind of the horrific attack. The U.S. wasn't notified of the IS leader's death by the Taliban, who reportedly launched an operation against IS Khorasan elements that led to his death, but instead learned of it through intelligence streams. The news of the killing was confirmed after the U.S. military informed the families of the 13 soldiers over the weekend that the IS leader was dead. The family members then shared the information in a private group chat before U.S. officials eventually made it public. Neither the U.S. nor the Taliban was reportedly aware that the IS leader had been killed until days after the offensive, but the U.S. officials said they had, quote, high confidence that the leader had been killed from intelligence inputs based on informants, electronic intercepts, and information from allied spy services. Many Republicans have leveled harsh criticism at the Biden administration's handling of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. However, Democrats point to Trump-era policies as a root cause. Adam, thank you for the facts of that story. Our first spin is a Republican narrative coming from Breitbart. While killing this IS leader will never bring back the dead or lift the burden of those whose family members were killed, it must force the Biden administration to own up to the responsibility of the chaotic and cold-hearted withdrawal of American forces from Afghanistan. With the Taliban systematically hunting people down, the war is not over, which points to a massive U.S. government failure. And Republican narratives are typically followed up by a Democratic narrative, and this one's provided by PBS. Though many in the U.S. political establishment blame Biden for the Taliban's return to power, it is ultimately an inevitability of a failed war with George W. Bush and Donald Trump also bearing significant blame. While the news of the killing offers a reminder of one of the most challenging chapters of his presidency, it also highlights the role of the Trump administration in creating the mess by providing no plans on how to conduct a withdrawal or to evacuate Americans and Afghan allies. The Mentaculous Prediction community is giving us a nerd narrative for this story as well, saying there's a 25% chance that the U.S. will recognize the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan before the year 2030. Have they never seen it before? Is that why they don't recognize it? It's unrecognizable at this point. Oh, yeah. It's like a little veil, maybe. Is it like uh, being kind of sultry and tempting? <laughs> Apparently so. <laughs> it's unrecognizable. It's camouflaged and it's... Uh, or is it going, you U.S. And the U.S. is kind of like looking around like they don't know him. Incognito. Do you hear something? Do you hear something, Tom? I don't, I don't, what is I don't that? recognize anything around here. They're, they're hiding behind bushes. That's it. Yeah, they're like totally... <laughs> oh, U.S., excuse me, mister. Wait a minute. Was that Edith Bunker? Oh, she... Yes, it's me, Eric. News coming from the United Kingdom as China's military buildup risks a tragic miscalculation. 
Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, The Japan Times, Independent, BBC News, South China Morning Post, and The Guardian. British Foreign Secretary James Cleverly on Tuesday called on China to be more transparent about its military moves, warning that maintaining secrecy about its activities could lead to a tragic miscalculation amid rising regional tensions. Cleverly called the PRC's military activities in the Indo Pacific the biggest military buildup in peacetime history, and urged Beijing to be as open about the doctrine and intent behind its military expansion in the region as Britain and its allies. During his address, which was devoted exclusively to China, he cautioned Beijing against invading self ruled Taiwan, noting that such a move would trigger global economic turmoil. Despite what he called China's ruthless authoritarian tradition, he called for constructive UK China relations while stressing the need for strengthening ties with Indo Pacific allies. To safeguard the UK's national interests and address global challenges, London needs to work with China rather than isolate Beijing in a new Cold War, cleverly said, rejecting calls from conservative China hawks for a tougher stance on the PRC. Cleverly, who hopes to visit China this year, also criticized Beijing for its alleged oppression of Uyghur Muslims in China's Xinjiang region and accused China of creating a, quote, 21st century version of the Gulag Archipelago. Commenting on Cleverly's speech, the Chinese foreign ministry said that the country's military modernization campaign was about safeguarding national security, adding that the PRC had never invaded any country. Thank you, Eric. We're going to start off with a pro-China narrative here brought to us by Global Times. While Cleverly's speech was rife with Cold War logic, it at least reflected some correction of the UK's previous aggressive stance towards China. The words might signal that London seeks a more balanced approach independent of Washington's geopolitical China strategy, and Beijing welcomes London's more pragmatic tone. However, it remains to be seen to what extent this will translate into the UK's China policy and whether London will adhere to the One China principle. The anti-China narrative comes from The Telegraph. Cleverly's warning against China's increasingly aggressive stance that was made simultaneously with his calls for constructive engagement reveals that London is increasingly willing to sacrifice its values and betray the free world. Beijing's imperial policy not only threatens Taiwan, there are clear indications that the CCP is preparing for war with the U.S. The British government's contradictory approach toward China will not pay off, and it must return to a clear and assertive position before it's too late. And there's a nerd narrative on this story that says there's a 20% chance that the U.S. and China will be at war before 2035. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. It's only 13 years, 12 years to go? Uh, you do the math. <laughs> well, let's see, 35 minus <laughs> 20. <laughs> Disney is suing DeSantis over its loss of its special district. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNBC, CNN, Fox News, BBC News, Politico, and NPR Online News. Walt Disney Company sued Florida Governor Ron DeSantis on Wednesday alleging the Republican has waged a relentless campaign to weaponize government power against the company amid a long-standing battle sparked by DeSantis's bill limiting discussion of sexual orientation and gender identity with schoolchildren. The lawsuit was filed in federal court after a DeSantis-appointed board 
tasked with overseeing Disney's special taxing district, voted to invalidate an agreement struck between Disney and the now-dissolved board last February. The company's complaint tells the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Florida that DeSantis and the board governing the Central Florida Tourism Oversight District containing Walt Disney World Resort targeted Disney by nullifying two development contracts. Disney's Park Division said it regrets having to seek legal action, but it is left with no choice but to file the lawsuit that seeks to protect the company's autonomous zone shielding from the state authority which has been in place for more than 50 years. While the DeSantis-appointed board voted to invalidate the pact that quietly gave Disney autonomy, the move may be on hold as the lawsuit works its way through the courts. DeSantis's deputy press secretary said, We are unaware of any legal right that a company has to operate its own government or maintain special privileges. DeSantis and Disney have been feuding since the company came out against the state's Parental Rights and Education Act last year. The governor has continually maintained that the company cannot defy state law. Those were the facts, and our first spin is a Democratic narrative coming from Vox. Disney is rightly fighting back against authoritarian Governor Ron DeSantis, who has repeatedly weaponized Florida's government to infringe on Disney's First Amendment rights. The potential presidential hopeful has tied his political identity to fighting the absurdly characterized woke corporation. But his real identity is his prejudice against LGBTQ plus people, as seen by his discriminatory laws. DeSantis cannot force Disney to abide. And then there's a Republican narrative provided by American Greatness. Disney has been badly losing its battle against DeSantis, and it will continue to do so. Not only does the corporation not have a moral ground to stand on, but it lacks any legal argument for its ability to defy state law. Disney is shamefully committed to indoctrinating children with inappropriate content. Its behavior should not be rewarded with undeserved corporate welfare. In our next story, a British economist says people must tolerate financial stress. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Guardian, BBC News, Huffington Post, The National, Sky News, and CNBC. The Bank of England's chief economist, Hugh Pill, said British households and businesses must accept they're poorer and stop seeking pay increases or pushing prices higher. He said there's a game of pass the parcel going on in the economy as households and companies try to pass on their higher costs. Inflation in the UK is at 10.1%, a slight dip from last month when it was 10.4%. It has been higher than the Bank of England's target of 2% for a substantial period of time. Speaking on a Columbia Law School podcast, Pill said, quote, You don't need to be much of an economist to realize that what you're buying has gone up a lot relative to what you're selling, you're going to be worse off. His comments came on the same day that Nestle, PepsiCo, and McDonald's all reported prices that helped their sales this year. A leading food bank charity has also said the number of emergency food parcels going to struggling households across the UK has reached an all-time high. Pill's remarks echoed warnings from Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey that large wages and costs push up inflation. While much of the inflation is from factors like energy and food costs, issues like wages are considered important secondary effects. Some analysts also fear stagflation, when there is low or no economic growth and high inflation due to imports, a weak British pound, 
and stagnant wage growth, among others. Eric, thanks for the facts. We've got a pro-establishment narrative provided by Harold Scotland. Some in the UK must accept that they're poorer, otherwise inflation will stay persistent. Many people are reluctant to accept this fact. People and businesses continue to ask for higher wages or charge their customers more money as a response to higher bills and costs. It will increase inflation. We're all worse off and we all have to take our share. The establishment critical narrative coming from The Sun. Food prices have risen at their fastest rate in 45 years. And inflation is above 10%. Five times the target. And Pill, a six-figure Bank of England official, says Brits must accept they're worse off and stop demanding pay rises. The former Goldman Sachs banker is out of touch with reality and people are suffering from economic distress. And we're going to wrap this story up with a nerd narrative from Metaculous Prediction Community that says there's a 4.4% chance that the U.S. housing market will crash before 2023. And sticking with the theme of not much money in our pockets, there's a report that half of New York City households face a cost-of-living crisis. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News. Crane's New York Business, Fund for the City of New York, New York Times, and Fox 5 New York. According to a report released on Tuesday, half of the working age group households in New York City don't make sufficient income to pay for their basic needs. The report, published by the United Way of New York City and the Fund for the City of New York, found that a family of four needs to earn more than $100,000 to survive. That marks a 38% jump in a two-year period from the last cost-of-living report in 2021, when 36% of working-age households were struggling to make ends meet at the time. The latest cost-of-living is significantly higher than the city's nearly $70,000 median household income. According to the most recent census data, with median household income even lower according to other sources, the report also found that 65% of Latin, 58% of Black and 51% of Asian, Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander households struggle with economic security, as opposed to less than half of U.S.-born households in total and less than a third of the white households. Skyrocketing apartment rents, inflation, and low wages are a few reasons 50% of the city households can't keep up with the cost of living. Adam, thank you for the facts of that story. Our first spin is a Republican narrative coming from Newsweek. Biden's deficit spending and destructive socialist policies have caused inflation to rise dramatically and actual earnings to drop by $3,000 for the average American in the past two years. The only solution to the cost of living crisis is a prominent Republican win in 2024. Only then can spending and regulations be controlled and America's economic recovery would be more robust and faster than anywhere else. That's followed up by a Democratic narrative provided by The Guardian. Inflation is a global challenge. The cost of living has become more expensive for every nation, not just America. Many countries across the world are facing pressures on public finances already strained by the pandemic and are struggling to rein in rapidly rising prices due to the war in Ukraine. Still, House and Senate Democrats are taking action to lower inflation, despite Donald Trump signing the majority of deficit spending over the past six years into law. And we have a narrative C for this story coming from Bloomberg. 
The study paints a dire portrait of a burgeoning cost-of-living crisis in America's largest metropolis. It's the latest evidence to demonstrate that more people in New York City are struggling to meet their basic needs than the official poverty statistics. Instead of indulging in petty politics, the Democrats, as well as the Republicans, must take a tight fiscal stance to help fight inflation and make New York affordable again. Let's take a bite out of the Big Apple and start living again. Yeah. Well, didn't they change their uh, uh, their, <laughs> their 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 from their their uh, slogan from what I Heart New York to they changed it to We Heart New York as opposed to, to I Heart New York. Did they really? <laughs> I think they did. It's something kind of lame like that. I think backing these two stories up, this one followed previously with the UK story in front of it, really just highlights the fact that it is a global situation, not just an issue with Biden's deficit spending and stuff. It's it's something being felt all the way around the world. Yeah, you're right. It's it's bigger than just right here in our backyard. It's everywhere. More news coming from the UK as Microsoft's $75 billion Activision Blizzard purchase is rejected. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Wall Street Journal, Verge, CNBC, and Eurogamer. On Wednesday, the UK's Competition and Markets Authority, or CMA, rejected Microsoft's $75 billion deal to buy video game maker Activision Blizzard Incorporated, arguing that the proposed acquisition poses a threat to competition in the UK's gaming industry. The CMA estimates that Microsoft controls around 60-70% to 70% of global cloud gaming services, and if it acquired Activision's Call of Duty, Overwatch, and World of Warcraft, it would give the company a significant advantage in the market. The regulator added that Microsoft could make Activision games exclusive to its cloud gaming platform Xbox Game Pass, which would cut off distribution to other industry stakeholders. Microsoft said the decision appears to reflect a flawed understanding of this market and the way the relevant cloud technology actually works, with Activision adding that it contradicts the ambitions of the UK to become an attractive country to build technology businesses. Because Microsoft contends it wouldn't be financially beneficial to withhold Call of Duty from the likes of Sony's PlayStation, Nintendo, NVIDIA, and others, it has offered those rivals 10-year agreements to continue bringing Call of Duty to their respective gaming platforms. Microsoft has said it would appeal the decision, though countries such as Brazil, Saudi Arabia, and South Africa have already approved the deal. Global deals like this typically need the endorsement of large national regulators to move ahead. Thank you, Eric. We're starting off with a narrative A provided by Forbes. This decision doesn't make sense, given that cloud gaming makes up a small portion of the entire video game industry. If the CMA was making an antitrust argument to protect the UK from video game monopolies, wouldn't it base its decision on the consoles people use to play video games, like Xbox and PlayStation? Narrative B is coming from the official website of the United Kingdom. The video game industry is a dynamic and creative one, and monopolizing an entire industry would diminish that creativity from other game providers. Microsoft didn't offer PC providers other than Windows access to the games, nor did it suggest allowing games other than those in its terms of service to be on its service, which goes directly against market competition. Well-calculated regulation made total sense here. You know, Eric, it's very telling of our nation's economy where the video game industry is more responsible than our actual government. Adam, can you hang on just a second? Let me put it in another quarter. <laughs> <laughs>
Hold on, I'm going to put it in a quarter two, but play doubles. Montana House censures trans representative Zoe Zephyr. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Washington Post, Federalist, and NPR Online News. On Wednesday, the Montana House representatives voted 68 to 32 to censure transgender state representative Zoe Zephyr, the Democrat, from allegedly encouraging demonstrators and disrupting proceedings following comments made by the lawmaker in response to a GOP-led bill to ban puberty blockers for minors. Last week, Zephyr told GOP lawmakers, If you vote yes on this bill and yes on these amendments, I hope the next time there's an invocation when you bow your heads in prayer, you see the blood on your hands. Since making those comments, GOP leaders have declined to recognize Zephyr on the House floor and deactivated the lawmaker's microphone while others debated, resulting in a protest Monday, which saw seven people arrested outside the state capitol as people filled the House chambers chanting, Let her speak. Wednesday's decision, a lesser penalty than expulsion, which was also considered, will see Zephyr barred from attending or speaking during future sessions requiring the Montana representative to vote on any legislation in absentia. Zephyr was informed about Wednesday's scheduled vote the day prior in a letter from House Speaker Matt Rieger, Speaker Pro Tem Rhonda Knudsen, and Majority Leader Sue Vinton that said the chamber would decide whether the Democrat, quote, violated the rules, collective rights, safety, dignity, integrity, or decorum of the House. This comes as three Tennessee Democrat lawmakers were recently kicked for committees for leading similar demonstrations on the House floor. Representatives Justin Jones and Justin Pearson were temporarily expelled, but later reinstated by their district's officials. Adam, thank you for the facts of this story. The Democratic narrative is our first spin, and it comes from Vox. Montana Republicans aren't just upset that Zephyr encouraged her constituents to exercise their right to protest but the issue behind the protests as well. The GOP is trying to criminalize gender-affirming care nationwide, which is why they want to silence any opposition to their anti-trans agenda before it can gain public traction. The Montana House is violating both trans rights and freedom of speech all in one fell swoop. And the New York Post is following that up with a Republican narrative. Zephyr violated the House rules not only by encouraging protesters to interrupt an official floor debate, but also demeaning the state government body through slanderous and vile personal attacks against fellow lawmakers. If you claim to be fighting for democracy, you shouldn't encourage mobs to disrupt floor debates by democratically elected office holders set to vote on an important issue. Singapore executes a man over a cannabis smuggling. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Time, Independent, BBC News, Al Jazeera, Washington Post, and The Guardian. On Wednesday, 46-year-old Tanguraju Sapaya was executed at Singapore's Shanghai prison complex, having previously been arrested for the intention to smuggle approximately 2.2 pounds of cannabis. Sapaya was arrested in 2014 and convicted of abetting by engaging in a conspiracy to traffic 1,017.9 grams of cannabis into Singapore in 2017, before being sentenced to death in 2018. He denied committing any wrongdoing. Despite not being found in possession of illegal substances, prosecutors said Sapaya had been involved in coordinating the delivery of cannabis, tracing two phone numbers used by a delivery man back to him. However, Sapaya's family argued that he was not given a fair trial. 
claiming he was interrogated without adequate legal counsel and denied access to a Tamil interpreter during his prosecution. Under the Misuse of Drugs Act, anyone caught importing or possessing more than 500 grams or 1.1 pounds of cannabis faces a mandatory death penalty in Singapore. Last year, the Southeast Asian country resumed the death penalty after more than a two-year hiatus caused by COVID. It executed 11 people for drug-related cases, including a Malaysian man with learning difficulties. Eric, thank you for the shocking details of that story. We're going to start off our narrative spins with a narrative A provided by Time. The death penalty violates international norms and breaches human rights. Killing innocent people for allegedly smuggling cannabis is cruel and misguided. The so-called war on drugs disproportionately affects the most marginalized and minoritized in society. Meanwhile, there's no evidence that the death penalty deters or reduces drug trafficking, which is why Singapore must review its drug policy and move away from capital punishment. Narrative B comes from South China Morning Post. Singapore's zero-tolerance stance and strict narcotics laws have allowed the country to remain safe, secure, and relatively drug-free, which shows that capital punishment does work to deter drug traffickers. The death penalty is essential to Singapore's criminal justice system, and since it is an effective deterrent against drug-related crimes, the public widely supports it. What a drastic difference about what's going on in Singapore compared to what's here in California. I'm in California. You can drive up to a, a window and pick up your marijuana and there's nobody there to behead you. It's crazy. I can remember back in high school having to go to a random park and looking for some guy who looked like they were selling marijuana. Weren't you the guy selling the marijuana? They said they got the phone <laughs> number, so I got to change my phone. <laughs> Our final story today comes out of Sweden, where a research rocket has accidentally landed in Norway. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, BBC News, New York Post, Al Jazeera, CBS, and Guardian. A research rocket launched by Sweden Space Corp, or SSC, on Monday from the Esrange Space Center in the country's north malfunctioned, landing 15 kilometers, or 9.32 miles, inside neighboring Norway. The rocket reached an altitude of about 150 miles before landing in Malselv, a mountain range at an altitude of around 1,000 meters and 10 kilometers from the closest settlement, the SSC said. Meanwhile, the Norwegian Foreign Ministry says it doesn't yet know whether there was any damage to the surroundings. The projectile, a Texas 58 rocket, is part of a European initiative commissioned by the European Space Agency to carry out zero-gravity experiments to learn how planets are born and how to move from fossil fuels to green energy. The SSC reportedly recovered the payload on Tuesday and announced an inquiry to establish the technical reasons behind the rocket's unplanned flight path. Swedish space officials say they gave Norway prior notice of the launch and updated their neighbor after the projectile landed. The Norwegian foreign ministry condemned the incident claiming Sweden didn't immediately inform it of the rogue rocket. It added that retrieval work wasn't supposed to begin without Norwegian authorization, which hadn't been granted. Thank you for the facts of that story, Adam. Our first spin is Narrative A coming from BBC News. Sweden should have informed Norway officials of its rocket's failed launch as soon as it suspected that it would land in Norwegian territory. However, Norway didn't get former notification of the incident until much later and Sweden failed to contact the foreign ministry through the proper channels. 
Sweden's rocket launch was a very serious border violation, and it must work to prevent an event like this from happening again. And we're going to wrap our narrative spins up with a narrative B provided by SSC Space. This is undoubtedly a serious incident and is being treated as such by Swedish authorities, who are now investigating the cause of the projectile's wayward trajectory. The SSC and Swedish Foreign Ministry have been in close contact with Norwegian officials throughout the entire episode, and the SSC has already retrieved the payload and will work to fix any errors. Adam, do you think that uh, Master Control had um, SOS by ABBA cranked up? <laughs> <laughs> Only when it started to come down. Yeah. Like, oh, oh, get the ABBA song ready. Get the ABBA. Yeah, we've always yeah, played. We've always played it loud. We've always prepared for. We've always prepared for this moment. <laughs> yes, play it loud. Play it loud. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Thursday, April 27th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.